Uh, as a as an aside, isn't it great to live in a democracy where where the 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 uh, the who you get to vote for is decided based on who can sort of best navigate the legal machinery <laughs> and arcana of challenging people's eligibility and so on. I really like yeah. that part of our system. It really really makes my constitutional heart th- throb with pride. <laughs> Yeah. It's called mer- meritocracy, baby. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty disgusting. But at the same time, uh, you know, not not to uh, return to dialectics as I often do, but it is <laughs> a dialectic. So much of the law is dialectics, and you know this mechanism that's been used to keep people out. All it is is a legal mechanism, and if you have uh, enough people organized. Um, you can defeat it. And we have before, and we're going to do it again. Preach, sister. I love yeah. it. A quick note before we get started here. Um, this is this is our second attempt to interview Emma Catterin. So... Um, uh, as you'll hear us reference that that fact, the first the first one was lost due to technical glitches. Uh, very unfortunate, but happens in the business sometimes. So um, yeah, let's get started. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek, and I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, and today we have um, Emma Catterin. Am I saying that right? Yeah, you got it. You uh, got it. Okay, first try. Well, I will certainly don't don't worry. There's at least one more name that you could possibly screw up that we're going to talk about. So. What did I mess up? I I couldn't remember the word crucifixion the last episode. Well, oh, God, I think you made up a good word. It was crucifixion. Is what was the word? You used? Yeah, that's... which I think we should. That should actually that should become part of the normal parlance, if you will. I like that. You know, I I'm a lapsed Catholic, so maybe it's just that <laughs> part of me. But that just sounds like a, some sort of sacrament. Like, yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, now it's time for the crucifixion. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The crucifixion will commence only if you've fasted properly. <laughs> uh, very good. Yeah. So welcome, welcome back. Thanks. I'm uh, happy to be back on. Yeah. So so um, Emma is a uh, I think a an a aspiring lawyer. Is that correct to say? Uh, actually, now I am a lawyer. I became a lawyer since our last attempt. So. Oh, nice. I I think that uh, that is causally connected. I'm going to take credit for that. <laughs> The the Faustian bargain has been made, and I'm lost forever. Yeah, well, it's worth it. So, legal it's scholar, um, someone who is who's involved with DSA and with uh, with I I um, I was listening to the Chris Hayes podcast with um, the the woman I forget her name, but the 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 prison culture on Twitter uh, that that lady and and sh- and she was saying that. What we have in the United States is not a a criminal justice system. We have a criminal punishment system, and I think that's a very apt mm. way of putting it. Yes. And so, um, you've you've written a lot of great stuff about like reforming the criminal punishment system that we have, and maybe trying to transform it into a criminal justice system. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we'll we'll be we'll be talking a lot about you know. Trying to roll back uh, mass incarceration, um, the the sort of um, uh, 
feminist aspects of the you know legal system as it exists particularly with bankruptcy and you know just like how we should think about trying to change this just i mean it, it, it can be easy to forget about but but like we basically have a gulag system in the united states this yes unfortunately i mean it takes it it it, it takes up something like you know 1 to 2% of the population which is more or less about the same amount that was uh uh at the height of the the soviet gulags uh, just an absolutely incomprehensible number of people who are sucked up into this system and especially you're talking about like poor communities of color it's like you know two-thirds of people have been in prison uh at, at some point or another um so anyway um i think maybe a good place to start is with this this article that that you you wrote for the uh the Berkeley Journal of Gender Law and Justice is called The Fresh Start for a Women's Economy Beyond Punitive Consumer Bankruptcy. So, Bill, uh, uh, sorry, Joe Biden is in the news a lot uh, for his him being incredibly handsy with women. But maybe, uh, you know, um, and a way into his other incredibly anti-woman uh, uh record is is talking about bankruptcy reform and so you know this is in in 2005 they passed this big um bankruptcy bankruptcy reform quote unquote which um changed a lot of things uh about how the bankruptcy process worked and so i guess first off emma can you can you tell us about how um the what changed in that reform just as a sort of matter of mechanics when when you you know people would go before the court and try to sort out their bankruptcy uh, process and not to rudely follow up his question with an uh, addition supplement to that but if you could back up and say maybe what the function of bankruptcy generally is and then that might modify how the reform plays into it yeah possibly? that yeah good sure um so yeah uh i think Basically, uh, for some of the listeners who maybe are confused right now being like, wait, are we going to talk about prison abolition or are we going to talk about bankruptcy? What are we doing here? Um, I'm really interested in the way that our legal system uh, punishes people both through the civil legal system as well as through the criminal legal system and uh uh, as a lawyer, um, uh, um, I'm a private practitioner and I do uh, FDCPA lawsuits, so I sue debt collectors. Um, so I see every day uh, the way that civil courts, um, through contract law, through consumer credit laws, um, punish uh, people for uh, what our society, what the laws have deemed to be uh, bad behavior. Now, bankruptcy, of course, um, is a pretty stigmatized thing. I think probably most of your listeners and even most people with radical politics can't help but, you know, 
immediately associate the word bankruptcy with things like failure, with giving up, with uh, financial ruin. Um, and uh, what bankruptcy uh, actually is, is it's a way for our economy to recycle stagnant capital. Um, and in the consumer context, it's especially important um, because our economy is really dependent on consumer expenditures. Uh, one of the things that I cite in the article is the percentage of our GDP that's made up of personal consumption, which was 68.7% uh, as of uh, the the, towards the end of 2016, um, people's uh, debt um, is what props up this spending, uh, increasingly so, and uh, uh, you'll see that as uh, our debt has increased, as the balance of household debt has increased, so has the amount of GDP that's made up of personal consumption. That's not a it's not a coincidence. Um, and uh, it used to be that capitalists realized uh, the importance of bankruptcy uh, for this reason. And in fact, uh, what we think of as bankruptcy, the modern bankruptcy system, uh, came about following uh, what... Uh, refer to as the long depression, the first economic depression the United States experienced in the 19th century. And uh, it was in reaction to that, that it was actually the creditors who were like, we need bankruptcy for consumers, because no one's going to take out loans if they are drowning in debt. No one is going to buy our stuff if people are drowning in debt. And so uh, what this led to was access for consumers to get uh, uh, a form of debt relief. Debt relief itself is actually a very old practice. You can see it in the Bible. Uh, you can see it in um nearly all of the ancient civilizations, um, usually in the form of uh, what are called debt jubilees, where um, every certain amount of years, sometimes seven years, sometimes 20 years, uh, everyone's debts were forgiven. Um, and uh, this, what this transformed into was a bankruptcy system um, where in U.S. law, uh, the purpose of bankruptcy was uh, to quote the Supreme Court to give consumers a fresh start. And uh, as our laws progressed, um, the uh, neoliberal perspective on the role of the state as being primarily to uh, punish primarily to get people into line, and then also to support uh, the market. Uh, uh, people started looking at 
the bankruptcy system, both Republicans and Democrats like Joe Biden and Bill Clinton uh, and Hillary Clinton, um, looked at the bankruptcy system and, and they said to themselves, well, the, you know, we don't think we don't think people should get this fresh start um, without some strings attached. We don't we don't believe this is fair. And to be clear, at the time, this wasn't just a, a free ride for people. Bankruptcy um, has never been a, a great deal for people in the United States. Um, it hurts uh, your credit, hurts your ability to get credit in the future. Um, it takes uh, a long time for it to be cleared from your credit report. And uh, of course, it comes with a lot of social stigma as well. And, uh, but what people like Joe Biden were upset about was this idea of a profligate consumer, of people who were just going out and they were shopping and just clicking that plastic, you know, just accumulating debt to buy cute clothes for themselves. Um, and not caring that they weren't, they didn't have the money to pay for it. And then when the debt got too overwhelming, they just went to bankruptcy and got rid of it. Um, that wasn't really based in any sort of fact as, uh, people like Elizabeth Warren desperately tried to, uh, tell Congress, uh, unfortunately to little avail. Um, and, uh, a lot of these ideas of these profligate consumers were very gendered ideas. Um, I was uh, very happy to see um, in the Financial Times, uh, like many uh, pretentious leftists, I read the Financial Times every day. Uh, <laughs> and um, I uh, was reading a story about Pinterest, uh, they did a IPO recently, and um, I write about Pinterest in my article because um, it's this great example of this gendered consumer identity. Uh, and in this Financial Times article, uh, they're talking about how Pinterest. Uh, their IPO was a little bit under, you know, the share value is a little bit under their estimates. And they're saying, so they've been, you know, trying to uh, reassure investors that, hey, look, 80% of mothers are using Pinterest. And I was like, oh, this is fabulous. This is exactly what I was talking about in my article, is that uh, our ideas of consumption are interlocked with gender identities. So, you know, when Pinterest is trying to sell itself as, and it says this in the article as well, it's trying to sell itself as an alternative to the Google style of marketing. Um, it's marketing by saying, oh, yes, we can reach this many mothers. And, you know, mothers is kind of the, the holy grail of the marketing world because it, it is true that women do the majority of uh, consumer expenditures uh, for households in the United States. It's uh, decreased substantially since, you know, like the 1950s, 1960s, but it's it's still the majority. And uh, it's, of course, no coincidence that when this 2005 bankruptcy law 
uh, was getting passed that it was talked about, you know, by comparing, oh, you know, these people who are going out and recklessly spending, this is costing uh, the average taxpayer, uh, I forget the amount off the top of my head, I think it was like uh, $300. And I was like, that's the same as one month of groceries for a family of four. And so, I mean, and that example is great because the, the inference is, oh, this woman is out shopping when she should be buying groceries for her family like a responsible <laughs> person would do. Yes. No, that's a, I really am glad you, you touched on that. And your article does a wonderful job. Everyone should read it, by the way, um, if you have any interest at all in, in, in the law or um, <clears throat> bankruptcy, especially it. It's the most fun law review article I've read a few, you know, and as it's footnotes about Marx, it brings up, you know, like pop culture. It's got, you know, Herland, which we'll get to it. It's just wonderful. But, you know, the intersectionality that you um, address in your analysis is really important to me because you show that um, the law, which is supposed to just be right? Fresh start for consumers, uh, which actually, as you already pointed to, is in service of capital and unclogging kind of the circulation, right, um, of of the flow of capital for the economy. Also, at the same time, and, and Ryan and I had an episode recently on Foucault, right, disciplines and punishes and establishes norms that can be gendered in different ways that intersect with class. So, so as you say, right, so uh, women, they're just out shopping all the time, and, 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 and there's this gendered notion of uh, which is reflected in like, okay, so women have disproportionate uh, amounts of consumption and also bankruptcy. Um, but then, you know, the class issue comes in, right, where some women, it's good that they shop a lot. And then other women, it's bad and they're irresponsible, right? So maybe you could talk a bit about how uh, kind of the, the discipline uh, and education of who's allowed to do what and who gets shamed or punished for what uh, comes into play with, with the bankruptcy laws. Yeah, so uh, basically my argument is that our bankruptcy laws and our ideas of uh, consumerism more generally are informed by this uh, double bind of uh, both the profligate spender and then also the uptight spendthrift or the uptight Scrooge, you know, whatever uh, reference you might want to use. And uh, I go through a number of different uh, cultural examples. Um, I mentioned Pinterest before. I also talk about uh, Pretty Woman. I talk about the novel McTeague um, and then a, a television show called Queen for a Day. And uh, basically my point is, is that uh, we place women into a situation where they're being told, especially in the in the modern world, are being told 24-7 uh, to buy things, that they will only be pretty if they buy things, that they will only be loved if they buy things, um, that they will, you know, only give a good life to their children if they buy things, and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, that's literally the, the theme of the of the show Queen for a Day is just it, the, literally the show just has mothers go on stage and they say what their problem is. And then the announcer is like, oh, well, here's some consumer good, you know, like a washing machine or a vacuum or whatever. And this solves your problem. Um, and uh, 
what the 2005 bankruptcy law did was it changed uh, bankruptcy from a tool of relief to a tool of punishment. And, and it did that in a number of ways that I discuss in specific with the article, but uh, the, the overarching one and really the sort of the thematic core of the 2005 bankruptcy law was changing uh, creating what's called a presumption of abuse um, for people filing for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Um, so not to get too into the weeds, but it is, I think, good to understand the difference, uh, especially for this article and just for your listeners' uh, right. uh, general yeah. understanding. And, and Chapter 7 is the consumer bankruptcy, right? So Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 are the 13, two right, main right, right. forms of consumer bankruptcy. Um, okay. Chapter 11 is mostly used by corporations and sometimes by very rich people. Um, uh, chapter 11 is uh, basically the uh, way that corporations really leverage bankruptcy. It's a very good form of bankruptcy. And of course, that's why poor people don't get to use it. That's the Trump bankruptcy. The Trump bankruptcy. I, I believe at least one of his was a chapter seven, but uh, irregardless. Um, so uh, chapter seven bankruptcy is uh, uh, where uh, is basically what you would generally think of as bankruptcy, where all of a person's assets, if they have any, are liquidated. Um, they're, you know, they get a few exceptions, you know, they get to keep, uh, at least one car so that, you know, they can drive to work or whatever. And they're usually not kicked out of their home as long as their home isn't too fancy. Um, and with most, you know, poor people, um, they don't have any assets. So chapter seven is, is the best for them, um, because, uh, they don't have to liquidate anything, and then uh, at the end of the day, all their all whatever money they can put forward goes to their creditors. And even if it doesn't cover all of their debts, that's fine. Uh, the rest of the debts get discharged, and they really get a fresh start. Um, chapter thirteen, on the other hand, is a glorified payment plan. Um, now. Chapter 13 is not without benefit. Um, you still get what's called a bankruptcy stay, um, which for some people is the difference between whether or not they're going to lose their home. Um, but uh, under Chapter 13, uh, people are generally going to have to pay 100% of the debts that they owed going into it. So it's not really debt relief as much as debt restructuring. And uh, the, what the 2005 bankruptcy law did is it said, we are creating a presumption that people who are filing for Chapter 7 are abusing the system. And that's an important uh, not only for legal reasons, which I, I go into in the article, but also in terms of the sort of the discourse that arises from the law. Um, you know, when when folks like judges and lawyers read the law, 
Um, I think a lot of them like to think that uh, they're just, you know, these uh, cold, neutral chess players just moving pieces across the board. Um, (laughs) But in actuality, of course, they're humans um, as much as it may not seem like sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Emma, my understanding is they're chess players and they're umpires. Yes. Balls and strikes. Balls and strikes and chess pieces (laughs) is mostly what's involved. That's my understanding. Let me ask you. It, it is so. My, you know, poor familiarity with the two five two thousand and five quote unquote reform of bankruptcy. Uh, was that when the means testing came in for consumer bankruptcy that kind of pushed people into Chapter thirteen um, that might have wanted to do Chapter seven in addition to this presumption of abuse or, or is yeah, that so something? So okay. it is. It is actually the presumption of a. Uh, Abuse. That's what, the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, abuse is presumed, and then you have to pass through this means test um, in order to uh, to get Chapter Seven relief, um, which is based on this measure called current monthly income, which takes the average of your last six months of income. Um, and then compares it to the median of the state income. Um, it's not. It's not great. Um, and uh, uh, but even beyond, you know, the sort of the people who are kept out of Chapter Seven through that way, um, it's also just an attitude adjustment, right? Um, it's that uh, lawyer, you know, judges. Um, uh, when they're evaluating bankruptcy, it is a full-on uh, opening of the books on a person's life. Um, uh, judicial determinations in bankruptcy are very much based on what they consider to be a person's appropriate lifestyle. I think you see some of the most blatant uh, judgments of class and where a person's proper place is in terms of class in the bankruptcy system. One of the examples that I brought up, which is a great uh, example of this intersection between gender and class, is a woman who uh, applied for bankruptcy and uh, was found to... uh, be an abuse of bankruptcy because uh, she was uh, spending too much um, and uh, uh, the judge, for whatever reason, decided that it was important to note that she had gained over 23 pounds Um, and... uh, I think I think the the idea was that that was somehow related to the to the clothes shopping, um, and uh, uh, compare that with um, a, another woman who uh, was a what the judge said was she was a high wage earner and that she had a penchant for shopping at luxury retailers. <laughs> And he didn't say this to criticize her. He said no, no, no. that it was co- commensurate with her lifestyle and that it was right. to the creditor's benefit that she could continue to maintain her current position in society because that would also maintain her rate of pay. 
Um, and you often see these arguments coming up um, in bankruptcy, and it's why the bankruptcy system just is so disproportionately applied across lines of, of class. And as I bring up in the article, not just class, but gender um, and uh, uh, ProPublica did a great um, investigation about uh, racial disparities in bankruptcy filings, showing that both judges and lawyers push um, black debtors disproportionately into Chapter 13, even when you control for uh, income and other factors. Yeah, the, the law is not a, a neutral arbiter. And and I think, Ryan, does this remind you of the Foucault um, at all in terms of the the shift to kind of judging the soul of the individual instead of inflicting pain on the body and, and having all these arbiters of, of who should be shamed and who should be told that they've gained too much weight because their lifestyle is inappropriate or not? I mean, this is just uh, this is how the law disciplines and punishes, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you, you see... I think yeah on the one hand like like this this sort of class and gender and racial prejudice being expressed uh you know through the through the process of bankruptcy but um I would also say you know maybe maybe it's worth sort of drawing out this point that I don't I don't think that the uh you know the 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 two, 2005 reform was a sort of like pro-profit uh thing in a broad sense like it was you know so joe biden is in the pocket of like you know big student loan big uh credit card and so on but by the way student student loans not dischargeable right emma that uh, that yeah, that was one of the things in the 2005 uh, bankruptcy law. Um, public student loans had actually already been um, non-dischargeable, with I think an exception where um, if the loan was older than like five years old, it could be um, discharged. Um, but uh, the um, uh, the uh, 2005 bankruptcy law made all student loans public and private, and no law, and no matter how old they were, and made them all um, exempt from discharge, which is just totally uh, bizarre and without precedent in terms of consumer debt. There's really nothing else like it, um, and uh, there's actually a. a good article that just came out recently um, on uh, efforts uh, to create a discharge for uh, student loan debtors under the current law. Um, but ultimately, of course, uh, we'll need uh, to toss or seriously amend the 2005 bankruptcy law to provide true debt relief. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, I guess just to complete this, the circle here is like as as you were saying, you know, back in the day, the capitalists realized that, you know, it it was it's necessary to create this sort of process by which people that have gotten in over their head uh, with debt could just 
wipe the slate clean. You know, they'll take a punishment. They're, they're, they won't be able to get uh, more loans easily in the future, but they could get rid of it and they could start spending again. And they could start spending on behalf of, you know, all of the retail manufacturers, the clothing and consumer goods and all that sort of thing um, to, to, to keep the economy sort of pressurized, I guess. And you, what you see with the with this so-called reform is that it, it it's it's like putting a it's like putting a, a a sort of you know arterial plaque in the economy you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's clogging things up and the um you know the i mean i think maybe the best example of this is uh you know after the housing the 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 2008 crisis um o- obama had promised that he would support cram down legislation which would um which would it's that which means uh which is to say the allowing uh someone to write down the value of their primary mortgage on their home uh to the actual value of the home according to the market in a bankruptcy proceeding right so if you you're declaring bankruptcy and you and and in the Chapter 7 process, if I'm not mistaken, you're usually allowed to keep your home. Um, mm-hmm. And then you could write down the value of the mortgage to the actual value. That's the cram-down proceeding. And you can do that with virtually any other kind of asset that you might owe on, you know, a jet ski or something. Right. Um, and he's stopped that process because Tim Geithner thought that it would it would harm the banks. It would harm the banks mm-hmm. because they would have to realize gigantic losses on all these loans that they had on their books, which would be reduced in value. But the overall result was that the economy was just there. It was basically just like tons of austerity, more or less. That yeah. that, that that you know all these all these consumers who would have otherwise been able to like you know they they would be. Uh, um, you know, in a sort of neutral position on their mortgage, we're, we're forced to pay on these these shitty overpriced uh, mortgages, and 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 uh, you know, having an underwater mortgage ruins your credit too. And they were unable to spend. You know, they 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 couldn't. They had this debt overhang, and so they were instead of instead of spending, they were trying to pay down this debt, and. Um, it just it slowed things down horribly, and that's one of the big reasons why the the recovery after the after the crisis was so terrible, because people couldn't get out from under this this vast overhang of mortgage debt, and you know I think it's it's like a uh, the sort of like logic of of capitalist ideology is kind of undermining itself, you know, in a very very classic Hegelian dialectic situation. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, with with consumer bankruptcy, um, the again, the the purpose of it is a little bit different than you would get in in like a corporate bankruptcy, for example, where it's usually quite literally to recycle capital um, and including like fixed capital, you know, a bank. Uh, a company may liquidate and, you know, its factory gets sold off. You know, when like Toys R Us, for example, with their bankruptcy recently, um, you know, it got partitioned off. Um, I believe that 
Kroger's got its like color scheme and like, you know, someone else got the mascot. Um, uh, like the, you know, the company is divided up and, and, you know, uh, sold off to various different highest bidders, but with consumer bankruptcy, um, it's, it's much more about people as the conduits um, for capital and that they that they're not uh, it's not so much that the capital that they have is stuck as much as that they are not able to move capital that their bankruptcy ties their hands behind their back and doesn't allow them to make the consumer expenditures that really power the economy yeah. right right no, that's a great point you know I, as as we uh, I we we need to talk about Herland and, and some of your responses uh, from what I think is, you know, a great radical Marxist perspective. Um, but also, you know, the reason we're talking about bankruptcy and, and then, you know, what we will be talking about in terms of prison abolition and, and what kinds of DAs we should be supporting, both have to do with kind of the type of quote unquote reforms that are harmful, that kind of uh, replicate the uh, ways in which the status quo and capital uh, oppress and subjugate people, but also the ways that maybe certain types of reforms, both within bankruptcy or within the prison system, uh, can be radically opposed to that structure and, and, and try to liberate people from, from that oppression. So, so this is really interesting to me, like trying to reclaim uh, law, right, whether it's civil or criminal, uh, and work from within, uh, even though Audre Lorde says you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, it seems like maybe you are trying in theory and praxis to kind of take on both civil and criminal uh, oppression from within. So, so you know, that's kind of the big picture I'm thinking of right now. What, um, what about Herland? What about bankruptcy could change, uh, and how would that look in order to not just serve capital's needs and subjugate and shape people according to these kind of classist and sexist norms. What, what, what could, what could actually be liberatory? Yeah. So, um, this is often the case with U S law and I'll definitely get into this more with, um, uh, the subject of district attorneys, um, uh, and the laws that are available to them. Um, but again, there is this core purpose of bankruptcy in U.S. law to give consumers a fresh start um, in their financial lives. And uh, that purpose is, is great, obviously. And I think what's really refreshing about that is it isn't just this sort of um, motivation that the capitalist had for, for creating consumer bankruptcy of, oh, you know, we have to, you know, we got to declog the system every once in a while so we can keep making money. Um, it's, it's about the fact it's, it's about principles of forgiveness. It's about principles of, um, of people getting second chances, um, and of people being provided with very real material opportunities, not this sort of, you know, um, 
uh, you know, Clarence Thomas take on the 14th Amendment sort of equality, but rather a, a, a sort of a true opportunity and equality. Um, of course, you know, I don't, I don't think that bankruptcy in any form that we have seen it goes quite far enough. I think that there should be forms of debt relief um, that are not tied to any sort of uh, punishment or stigma or really any other sort of detriment um, to the people who file for it. I think that working class people have generally suffered enough from consumer debt and there's no reason to make them suffer further in the process of having that debt relieved. Um, in terms of more immediate things, though, that we can do, uh, this presumption of abuse stuff has got to go. The 2005 bankruptcy law in general needs to be um, revisited, and people uh, like Joe Biden need to take accountability for the harm that they've done to working class people, to women, and to people of color in this country, or they need to be taken out of office and taken out of political life. Um, and one of the things that we were we were talking about earlier um, is, uh, and one of the things the 2005 bankruptcy law did was it mandated uh, credit counseling and financial education, uh, but used those as another form of punishment against people. And that's just not uh, not been proven to be effective. Um, obviously, the biggest cause of financial hardship is being poor, being working class, not making a lot of money, having, you know, ridiculously high rents, especially proportionate to your income. Um, you know, uh, we should not only teach people about how capitalism works and about how finance works, um, but we should be actively trying to reinvent those things. And we should create a culture of acceptance around public money investing in these things, both as an alternative to private credit, um, as well as uh, to relieve people from private credit. Um, and uh, lastly, you know, uh, uh, this is, I, I was writing this, God, when did I write this? I think in 2016. So this might be why I was so dismal. Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I do think that uh, financial crisis um, is unavoidable. Um, I think that even a lot of, uh, you know, neoclassical economists and mainstream economists recognize, um, even if they call it a market correction or a market downturn rather than a crisis, uh, that these things are built into the system. And particularly, I think that the next time a financial crisis happens, um, we need to look at bankruptcy um, and the lack of relief for consumer debt um, and make sure that people see the role that that played in the financial crisis. Because uh, I think that was one of the great failings of the Great Recession was that, um, you know, 
there was, and I was, you know, I was part of Occupy. Um, I was part of Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Wall Street was great at, you know, adopting Joseph Stiglitz, 99% framing, 99% versus the 1%. It was great at, you know, identifying Wall Street as a singularly overwhelmingly oppressive force in our society. But it wasn't so great, although a lot of people tried to. Um, There were debt jubilee projects that sort of arose from Occupy Wall Street that were really great. But it really failed to get into the public discourse that, you know, all of these complex financial instruments like credit default swaps, um, these were ways of corporations making money off of the suffering of working class people. Um, It wasn't just that, oh, they were reckless and they were playing with fire and got burnt. No, this, these were things that were constructed to make money off of other people's misery. And that's how our consumer debt system works. I listen you know, to uh, debt collection calls a lot in my line of work. And uh, you know, I hear people talk all the time about how, oh, they're going to have to postpone their surgery in order to make payments. Oh, they're going to have to miss a meal to make payments. And, you know, I'll ask debt collectors, I'll ask banks, I'll ask credit card companies, you know, uh, do you know that this is this is happening? And they say, well, yeah. And I mean, of course they know. Um, And the issue is that uh, we have stigmatized things, um, both we have this sort of process of reification between our social and cultural norms in the law where our, you know, the sort of uh, misogynist ideas of these profligate consumers inspired the 2005 bankruptcy law, which the presumption of abuse in that law in turn has inspired stigma around bankruptcy and people who are in debt. And the, you know, it's a feedback cycle that reinforces itself over and over. And we have to break the cycle both in terms of the law and in terms of culture and society. Yeah, yeah. Um, this this maybe is a good point to turn to the the question of uh, prison abolition that we were we were talking about before um, in the introduction. Um, you, you wrote an article, we'll, we'll, we'll link it, um, in the description about, um, the, the candidate, this, I don't think this election has happened yet to, uh, the, for the DA candidate, uh, Tiffany Caban. Yes. Um, did he say it right? Did he, he get did it? He did get it right. Yes. Wow. Two He's for on two. a roll today. <laughs> Amazing! It's amazing. Yeah, the elections in June, isn't That's it? That's right. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's awesome. Is the peti- it's, Do we need to promote petition signing, or what's what's the what's the deal at this so, point? Where are we? Um, where we're at with the campaign is uh, the petitions have been signed. Um, one of the other DA candidates um, has filed an objection to the petitions. Uh, this is pretty common for any kind of insurgent or radical candidate. 
Um, I helped uh, with a very similar objection to uh, Julia Salazar's campaign uh, that they fought all the way up to the New York Court of Appeals, which is New York's highest state court. Um, they got their butt kicked, and then they got their butt kicked in the election. So um, nice, uh, nice. I'm hoping. Well done. I'm hoping that we can uh, repeat that with uh, Tiffany Caban's campaign. But it will really depend on uh, folks in the New York City area going out and uh, volunteering and making sure those doors get knocked. And and she's the the candidate for Queens, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, the Queens District Attorney. Yeah, as a as an aside, isn't it great to live in a democracy where where the 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 uh, the who you get to vote for is decided based on who can sort of best navigate the legal machinery <laughs> and arcana of challenging people's eligibility and so on. I really like yeah. that part of our system. It really, really makes my constitutional heart th- throb with pride. Yeah. It's called mer- meritocracy, baby. Yeah. It's, um, it's pretty disgusting, but at the same time, uh, you know, not, not to uh, return to dialectics as I often do, but it is <laughs> a dialectic. So much of the law is dialectics. And, you know, this, mechanism that's been used to keep people out all it is is a legal mechanism and if you have uh, enough people organized um you can defeat it and we have before and we're going to do it again preach sister i love yeah. it and then oh, that is it's good it's kind of the flip it's like america is sort of a pseudo democracy you know but there, there are those elements in there, and and it and it is the case where if you if you really tr- if you really try and you and you really have, you know the the people behind you, you can you can sometimes like get get some purchase in there, and so you know I think it's important not to just just give up and say ah it's co- the system is completely rigged. That's I mean it's it's like mostly rigged partly rigged but it's not 100 percent fraudulent you know and so you, you you can get in there and, and and change things um but yeah i guess you know to to speak a little bit more about kind of i guess ideal theory issues you know um uh the 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 prison abolition uh movement is sort of i would say it seems like it's sort of pointing to a, a future in which, like, police and courts and so on are, are just, they're just, like, sort of not a part of society. And so, you know, maybe maybe you could sort of illustrate that for us. I, I think it's kind of confusing for, for a lot of people. Like, it's hard to imagine, you know, but, like, like what what would your sort of ideal future look like if you're thinking about a sort of Star Trek, you know, future utopia? <laughs> What's that going to look like? Um, fun fact, I have never watched an entire episode of Star Trek. Um, awesome. I, I've been working my way through DS9 recently, and uh, it's very good. I, I that- would... Definitely recommend. What it. is DS Nine? What does that mean? I don't even know. Deep what it Space means. Nine. What does that mean? This is a nineteen oh. ninety show with um, Captain Cisco, the best is Star that, Trek captain. Yeah. Is that Patrick Stewart? No, 
No, uh, no. This is, this is he's hot. He's hot. The only black starts okay. Star Trek captain. Ah. Uh, I forget the name of the actor. Now, Emma, should, should I Brooks. take you to mean that you at, that you attempted to watch Star Trek but could not finish an episode? Uh, I no, honestly, I've just never really tried. It's just not okay. I, I you threw know. me off with the way you phrased that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, it's just an interesting that it's, it's just funny to me that I've never seen an entire episode because all my friends love it. Um, I'm I'm a pretty nerdy person, so it seems like something <laughs> I would have watched. Um, but yeah, plus you know. Lefty ideal, not having scarcity as a problem. That sounds great. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, but you, nonetheless, push for some type of kind of utopian demanding, I, I would take it, within our scarce resource society that we live in, right? Like, yeah. like prison abolition, I really enjoyed what you wrote because uh, from your work with actual people that are on the inside, you, it seems like you discovered that uh, you know, when people typically think of prison abolition as a movement, they think of what we're getting rid of or what we're dismantling. Uh, um, but th- but there was this like recurring question: Well, what's the positive vision? What 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 do you do instead? Right. Yeah. So that really struck me that 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 touched touched you. You know. Yeah. Um. I uh have done um a little bit of work with people in prison over over the years. Um. It's work I'm very proud of. Um. And. Um, people, it really cannot go, it cannot be said enough that, um, people in United States prisons are some of the most oppressed people in the world, some of the most dehumanized people, um, in the world and are also some of the bravest, um, people I've ever met, some of the most, uh, resourceful and clever and, um, especially, uh, the jailhouse lawyers out there who, who, uh, more often than not, are helping many others besides themselves. Um, but uh, uh, I also, you know, in in the process of doing this work as a uh, admittedly pretty naive uh, white person, um, was pretty surprised by a lot of the reactions I got from people I was working with in prison to the idea of prison abolition. Um, uh, there's a lot of negative reactions, a lot of, um, uh, you know, either uh, thinking that it was too idealistic um, or accepting, you know, the sort of uh, prison mentality of, uh, oh, you know, these other people in here, they are criminals, they are monsters. It's just me. I'm just the one who's misunderstood or, you know, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it really made me, you know, sort of think about, well, you know, is this, am I, am I, you know, do I have the right vision here? Is this really the, the sort of, uh, vision that I should be promoting? Um, and, you know, and even more so, uh, how does this sort of align with my politics around things like, uh, consumer debt? and around socialism. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, this led me to, uh, sort of start thinking about prison abolition in, uh, a way that, uh, there's a, there's a really good book, uh, that I recommend called, uh, The Communist Horizon by Jody Dean. 
Dean, yeah, um, that's good. And uh, one of the things that she talks about, the sort of the main theme of the book, um, is her conception of communism as this ideal and not really as an ideal that um, is, you know, maybe it is realizable, but it doesn't, it's not, we, we can all pretty safely say it won't be realized in our lifetime. But the point isn't to, to you know, believe that we are going to realize it, but to move towards that horizon, um, even if it doesn't seem like it's getting any closer, that we should be moving towards it. Um, and that's how I feel about prison abolition, because I think even a lot of the more reactionary people out there, more reactionary supporters of mass incarceration will admit that prisons are terrible. <laughs> they really are. Yeah. Um, uh, no one likes them. I don't think anyone, you know, has ever been happy to walk through the doors of a prison, even if they're wearing a correction officer uniform. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the ideal of having a world without prisons and a world even more broadly without the sort of coercive punishment that prison is such a uh, horrible um, example of uh, is the sort of world that people like me strive for. Um, the sort of starting at the idea of how can we move towards a world without prisons and towards a world where uh, people are not uh, punished in these sort of coercive and dehumanizing ways. Right. Yeah. Right. No. It, it, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm. I. Th I think that you know, in 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 terms of movements, I I would absolutely agree with you. You know, where it's like you just just I'm, as with many other policy areas, you know, you look at international comparisons, and and it's like we we have this vast population of people in a in in incarcerated or under you know, parole supervision and so on that um, is just totally unparalleled in the rest of the world. And, you know, America is a pretty violent country, but it's not that much more violent than, like, you know, Germany or something. And, um, it, you know, the prison, that that prison population is, like, 10 times better. And so they're 10 times larger. And, and um, so when you're talking about something, like you mentioned Larry Krasner's... Um, prior uh his policy of uh you know just getting rid of cash bail for you know a, a lot non yeah nonviolent offenses and it, it, it's essentially like the result is there's no effect at all that mm -hmm. that it was that like they were throwing all these people in jail for for literally no reason they still showed up to their their hearings and so on and it was completely pointless to be keeping them in these in these cages at, at vast public expense, by the way. You know, very yep. expensive to be doing this. Um, well, and and not just at, you know, public expense in terms of how much the government spends, but also in terms of these bail bond companies that unfortunately the New York legislature failed to abolish like it should have uh, when it recently passed the budget. But these... Bail bond companies are some of the scummiest people 
you could ever deal with. Uh, There's a woman here in New York who calls herself the queen of uh, of bonds uh, companies. And uh, she said that she only looks at people as walking money. Um, These are just the sort of like uh, bottom feeders uh, that are created when you have uh, and this is and this is sort of the the whole philosophy of prison abolition realized that when you have systems of coercive punishment, it produces a sort of a rippling effect that creates more coercion, more violence, more fracturing of our society. Yeah, but that's what you know. Go ahead. Sorry, buddy. The system produces that woman and that that queen who looks at people that way as much as it produces the people that are induced to go into debt to consume. Like that, the, the whole point is the system produces all of these things together to work together. And if we want to, we can realize that we don't need systems to just control us we can control the systems right mm-hmm. and i think that's what you're trying to do to work from within whether it's krasner or um, tiffany caban you know we can actually start to change the ways in which we uh induce or don't induce people to to do these things and we could you know we'll have to do a separate episode on her land <laughs> i just want to keep bringing it up uh we can control the way that we live together people get lost in the complexity sometimes but like we are determining for ourselves how we treat each other. And these systems and laws are simply like reflections of how we choose to do that and what we're incentivizing, what we're punishing, what we're, what we're, you know, so, so it's like, it's not an accident that these people, it's not just these terrible people exist in the world. It's they're produced by this structure that we've created. And so we need to dismantle it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But, um, to sort of finish my point there, um, uh, there's a there's a, a journalist for the L.A. Times who wrote this book called Ghetto Side um, that was just looking at the just apocalyptic rate of murders amongst the 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 poor black community in in like parts of Los Angeles. Very very right. And right. and you know there's something similar that happens like like U.S. murder rate is very high, but it's it's like the average is driven up by these just like incredibly bad rates among certain impoverished communities of color. And and her argument basically in that book is that there is a ton of murders in those in those communities because basically the police never solve them. They just don't they don't. Um, they they've sort of allowed this situation to develop by where you know like like gang violence is a sort of like Hatfield and McCoy's type of situation where where there is no adjudication of these you know violent disputes and so like people sort of develop gang culture as a as a sort of like proto state like kind of warlordism type mm-hmm. of thing and and so you know she doesn't. I mean, she says some good stuff about the the ability of like welfare and so on uh, to 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 sort of like suck some of, like like pull the like diffuse a little bit of that that violent competition out. But you know, she, she's not saying that what we need is uh, you know just psychopathically harsh punishments on every cr- criminal. But um, you know, saying that 
instead of just trying to do this like affective demonstration where you make the penalties incredibly harsh, but then you're too incompetent or lazy to try to actually solve the crimes that happen, that what you need to do is you you need to solve the crimes, and even if the punishment isn't is not is not very harsh, you know, or whatever, you you need to make it clear in these communities, as I think it it kind of is in a lot of white communities, that if someone is killed, someone's murdered, then the state's gonna come in here and it's gonna it's gonna find the perpetrator and it's going to levy some sort of punishment on them. And that is why the murder rate in like European countries is much, much lower than it is in in uh, American uh the these these like sort of inner city uh, free for all type of type of places, and um, I don't know. So, so what would you say to this 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 kind of notion of the? I mean, obviously, we don't have that in this country, but the the notion that that w- this kind of has to be a necessary part of of adjudicating violent personal disputes to to have, you know, a sort of punishment apparatus that that takes people who commit grievous offenses and and takes that away from the sort of instinctive desire for revenge and uh you know get, gives a sort of neutral uh, at least as far as possible kind of arbitration and punishment process yeah um i think this is you know um there's a common misconception about prison abolition and while there's there's a diverse range of people of what prison abolition means to different people i think one thing that prison abolitionists generally agree on is that we are not seeking seeking to absolve people of accountability or responsibility for wrongdoing um especially of course you know any kind of anti-social violence. Um, I think the issue and the issue that's sort of revealed by that book, as well as sort of uh, something that I focus on a lot, which is, you know, the impunity of corporations from any kind of criminal prosecution, is that we have a two-tiered legal system, a two-tiered criminal punishment system, um, where crimes uh, uh, the purpose of crime is to uh, warehouse working class people and people of color um, rather than to, to heal communities, rather than to prevent violence, and uh, certainly uh, to not hold corporations accountable or hold people accountable um, for, you know, all of the sort of white collar crimes that we see. Um, and I think uh, Tiffany Caban's platform is sort of a, a great um, uh, sort of example of this uh, theory being put into practice where, you know, she's advocating for things like uh, community advisory boards where people democratically um, engage with law enforcement to say, this is what we need and this is what we want, you know, uh, that, um, you know, a recognition that community groups, um, are often best at responding to gun violence 
rather than um, I think the sort of the flip side of what you're talking about is, um, especially here in New York, you know, you have neighborhoods where the cops won't show up or do anything for, you know, months or even years. And then in one night they do giant gang raids where they arrest 200 random teenagers and charge them all with conspiracy. Um, There's a, there's a famous uh, case here um, called the Bronx 120 where literally 120 kids in the Bronx were arrested for things like posting, you know, on Instagram uh, with certain emojis that, you know, apparently show their gang affiliation. Um, I mean, I posted uh, that I was listening to, um, dead prez on instagram so maybe i'm uh gonna get arrested for for gang activity um but uh you know another thing that uh caban has pointed out is that uh you know our form of policing and especially you know broken window policing um and mass surveillance modern policing um punishes entire communities for what is usually the antisocial violence committed by a very small amount of people. Um, Generally, these sort of really violent offenses that are usually used to justify. um, Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, Her her specific line is uh, target the 6% who commit 60% of crimes. Um, yep. And her whole point is that uh, declining to prosecute cases is not just about, you know, uh, uh, you know, refusing, for example, to enforce patently unjust laws like our prohibition of prostitution, which is just used to uh, racially profile women of color, uh, which is just used to arrest women um for you know carrying a condom i mean it's a ridiculous crime um it's not just about you know uh not enforcing those unjust laws but also not spending the district attorney's time and resources on what are fundamentally not dangerous to our communities yeah yeah no it's it it seems to me there's this asymmetry right which you know with with 2008 it was clear who brought down the global economy but what one person w- was prosecuted and people got golden parachutes um uh, and and so so it's like we have clarity of who is causing evil but because of in much the same way that you talked about with kind of the high class earner who has a penchant for a nice lifestyle of shopping at, you know, elite <laughs> stores and right. In the same way, those, well, those are kind of the people that run the global economy. We can't, we can't go after them. Uh, but we know, we know who's really guilty there. On the other hand, you know, when there are uh, crimes that cause lots of harm, but there's not an interest in who's actually committing them. There's just an interest in punishing communities. Generally, there's this kind of asymmetry, right? Where um, it's just such a backward system that, uh, you know, what what Ryan suggests seems to be kind of um, one of many problems that, that have to be upended. And so it seems to me that, that going after corporations uh, for their violations of tenants' rights, for their violations of all kinds of crimes would be great. 
uh, while at the same time, like you say, not enforcing putatively just like unjust laws that are that are just trying to oppress and, and push people down. So um, it's 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 really important that that you're supporting this campaign, and and I hope we can start to change things from the inside. And um, from a from a theory perspective, what's really exciting is that um, we're seeing a lot of folks, um, both from who come from an, uh, a background of working on prison abolition and issues of the cr- criminal punishment system, and then also people coming from the other perspective of you know socialist. Um, like uh, uh, the Democratic Socialist of America, for example, the organization that I'm in, uh, uh, passing a resolution in um, 2017 uh, endorsing uh, the uh, concept of prison abolition. Um, And then uh, there's a great book, which I haven't finished yet. I'm making my way through uh, Carceral Capitalism, by Jackie Wang, which is a, uh, has so far been a really great uh, realization of the interconnectedness between uh, the financial system, between uh, for-profit capitalism in general, and uh, mass incarceration. Yeah. Yeah, sounds that's that sounds like good stuff. Um, I haven't read that book, but I'll have to check it out. Uh, we should probably let you go, though. Um, Emma Catherine uh, is on Twitter. We will we will link that in the description. Um, thanks for coming on so much. Thanks for having me. It was uh, great. And please come back, and we'll force Ryan to read her list. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going. 